Hi everyone, this is Donald Robertson and I'm here today with my very special guest, my wife, Casey Robertson, who writes under the pen name Casey Pierce. And so we are, we're really on a razor's edge today. We're doing something unheard of in the field of podcasting. Like I'm going to, a man is going to be interviewing his own wife. So I have to be very careful and do a good job with these interview questions is that right Casey I was waiting for the Muppet Show music to start the Muppet Show <laughs> you, you can do the music as well then I'll leave that I'll leave that to you um with a very special guest Casey Pierce <laughs> <laughs> so Casey and I have been married twice like in the sense that we got married during the pandemic and so we had a small wedding official wedding and then we waited almost a year and then we had our wedding ceremony, which I'm mentioning because we just had a wedding ceremony very recently. And uh, we know each other because we both work in publishing. Casey's a writer and an editor and she worked with me on one of my books, uh, the graphic novel, Verissimus. So I thought a really cool place to start would just be talking about Verissimus and how you see that, because I talk about it all the time, but I wondered how you see it from your perspective. So Casey, how would you describe what Verismus is all about in your own words? Verismus is a bio-epic about the life of Marcus Aurelius and his reign in Stoic perspective during the Marcomannic Plague, uh, I'm sorry, the Marcomannic War, the Antonine Plague, uh, bereavement, and uh, even on his own deathbed. So what are your favorite bits? Uh, my favorite aspect is that we get to see his teachers and his learning in action. Uh, we also get a chance to see what may have happened. For instance, Junius Rusticus introducing him to the works of Epictetus. Um, there is some element of fiction, but only for the purpose of bridging gaps in uh, what we know of Marcus Aurelius' story. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So, I mean, we have a lot of information about Marcus Aurelius, but there's kind of like gaps in it and stuff. So particularly for a visual story, like a graphic novel, we kind of need to join the dots a little bit. And particularly sometimes we need to make up dialogue. Um, so we try to do that as authentically as we could, drawing on some of the sources that were available. And often I, a good way of putting it would be we're describing what might have happened or but basing it on, on what we're told happened. Right. What was, like, most likely? Like, why not Junius? You know, it's not blasphemous to say. Yeah, what's plausible, like, as a, a way of interpreting the, the scraps of evidence that we have. So who do you think is actually going to read this thing? And and what do you what do you hope that they get from it? What do you hope that they take away? Um, I think this is aimed for 12 and up. Um I think it's really geared towards fans of films like 300 and Gladiator. It has that epic feel to it. Uh, but what I hope people will take away is that a king, royalty, led legions, and an empire always with a stoic mindset. An outlook he adopted from the common man like Socrates and former slaves like Epictetus. Um, there's a scene with Fronto, which is actually one of my favorites. It's not a lot of action, but as they walk and talk during the time of the plague, um, the conversation implies that nothing separates us, despite where we come from, social class, because it's clear that no one is exempt from death and loss. Impermanence is something that we all have in common, something that we all share. 
uh, and no one is exempt. Well, so your favorite bet is the most emo bet. It's whether it's too many talking. Marcus is emo. That you know what? That was my biggest takeaway after reading the whole graphic novel was that well, Marcus is <laughs> really emo because the entire time we are watching him journal his reflections about life and death. And he's he's a very emotional person. Um but uh, yeah, he's he's pretty emo. <laughs> and he, also what I take from the meditations out of all the stoic writings that we have is that his focus is a little more on impermanence. Uh-huh. And the fact that we're all meeting at the same place, the graveyard. I'm like, geez, Marcus. Let's talk about that a lot. <laughs> he also, we're told in the Historia Augusta, it says that he used to go around at night wearing a black cloak. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so it also sounds kind of emo. Like, um, so you think... He would for, have been a Big Sisters of Mercy fan. Definitely. Like, so you think um, 12 or up, but that's controversial because I asked Poppy, my little girl, she said 13 and up for boys. Yeah, well, you know, Poppy's always right. <laughs> There's some boobs and some violence. There's some boobs and violence. That And just one pair, so it's all good. No one, the weird thing, what I'm really interested in actually is, you know, people can decide about the boobs and the violence, but nobody so far has said that they thought the philosophy was too heavy. And people have told me they've eight-year-olds have read it and stuff and none of them said yeah all this philosophy stuff was really boring or it was too heavy yeah much like how to think like a roman emperor it was very it yeah it, res, it resonates with everybody it's easy to understand either that they're just skimming over it either that they're just like, looking <laughs> they were too and, focused on the boobs and violence they're distracted which is actually very tasteful i remember doing the content editing for it i said there's nothing um what i would say lewd about this at all I should say, although we've mentioned it three or four times, there is only one panel with boobs in the entire book. It's a married couple right. in bed. Yeah, you can Calm down, folks. Miss it. Like, Nothing's so, even happening. So we should talk about your work. Like, well, Christmas is partly your work, but your actual um, books that you authored yourself. So tell us about Nora. Uh, let's go all the way back and tell us a little bit about Nora and Pieces of Madness. What are they about? Uh, so Nora, which is a sci-fi comic series, was basically my love letter to Starship Troopers. Um, Nora has the ability to delve into your mind's eye and retrieve you from or help you cross over in the event of a coma. And she obtained the ability while working in pathogenic development for the CIA. So it was, it's very much uh, Starship Troopers meets X-Files. Um, if you like your sci-fi dark and a little slow... Uh, you would enjoy Nora. Um, it's all hand-painted as well by uh, Sean Seal. Is it autobiographical? <laughs> no, but people say that Nora looks like me, but I actually... Does look a lot better like you, yeah. I sent the illustrator a picture of Jennifer Jason Lee from The Hudsucker Proxy, because I kept saying, like, she's lovely, but she has resting bitch face. He goes, Casey, I don't know what that looks like. And so <laughs> I showed him. She's got a hard edge to her because um, from the jump, you understand that, you know, it's about aliens, it's about, you know, the CIA, it's about all this stuff, but ultimately it's about a woman coming to terms with the death of her husband. And what's Pieces of Madness? Pieces of Madness is seven short tales of the insane cultist and paranormal. Uh, Clive Barker meets Twilight Zone. It's uh, definitely a gore novella. That was where I started long ago. I wrote that, gosh, almost 10 years ago. So be kind, people, if you pick it up. Is it autobiographical? Some of it. Some of it, yes, because I was very inspired. There's a lot of religion in this, and uh, I was very inspired 
by my upbringing, which I grew up uh, fire and brimstone Pentecostal. So I grew up around people that spoke in tongues. And, um, you know, I also have friends who... Could you give us a demonstration for Christmas <laughs> at home? No, I offend some people if I even impersonate it. Um, but uh, I also grew, grew up around people who said that they grew up haunted. And uh, people who dabble in the occult and things like that. So I kind of merged the two. And it's also a telling of my greatest fears, too. Because what's in the book is what genuinely scares me. What did you learn from working on Nora and Pieces of Madness? Uh, I learned a lot about marketing, actually, because I, uh, in my early days in publishing, like being an indie creator, you're in the trenches. I mean, nobody's going to love your baby like you will. So we had to get out on the sales floor and really push this thing. And, uh, you know, it, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of pain to do that because those no's really hurt, but then, uh, you really learn how to market yourself. But uh, what I really learned over the years of writing fiction was more and more about world building. And you just learn that the more you read and the more you write, just never stop. What is the other people who live here? The other people who live here, which I have no idea when it's going to be made. Um, it is, um, but you've written it. Yes. Yes. It's a space opera about Alzheimer's. So uh, my mother has dementia, and she often would talk about the other people who live, they live here, uh, which, you know, obviously there would be nobody else in the room, but she would talk about them all the time. And it's people that she's never known in her waking life from the way she described these people and their names and things like that. So I thought, you know, what if it was like, a, I don't know, something really cool, like a, a space fleet. <laughs> so it's about... A little girl who grows up uh, in the 60s um, she doesn't have any friends uh, drunken dad beats on mom sort of the old chestnut for the time and to cope with a life like that she creates imaginary friends who are like a Starfleet because in the 60s we're seeing the rise of you know things like Star Trek and um, she loses touch with the imaginary friends when she sort of loses the age of innocence and then she's reunited with them as she slips into um, an early onset of Alzheimer's. And so, um, and then she rejoins the Starfleet and the adventure continues post-death. So it's sort of a life after death story. Why is it particularly important to you, this book? Um, well, it's important to me from a personal perspective because it's helping me cope with my mom's uh, eventual, um, you know, with her own impermanence. Um, so writing it is helping you cope? Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and about manifest destiny. So, the other people who live here, if I hear you right, benefited you sort of emotionally or psychologically. It was kind of therapeutic. And you've been writing more self help and psychological stuff recently, particularly on Medium. So, do you want to say a little bit about how do you feel that the other people who live here benefited you? And, and you know, is there a, some kind of connection between that and the writing that you've been doing uh, online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I try to be as transparent as possible. And the things that I say in my work and in my Medium articles particularly are things I tell myself every day. You know, um, And uh, I find it really rewarding to help other people. And I don't think, you know, um, sitting on top of a pedestal and, and looking down and talking at people helps anybody. I, you know, I often joke that I've successfully, you know, 
monetize screwing up in my life and finding redemption through Stoic philosophy, and I will continue to be um, the Stoic lens of a lay person. Uh, and I don't take myself that seriously, and uh, I acknowledge that I'm no expert, but I do strive to be transparent to admit my mistakes and shortcomings uh, and provide everyday yet original situations in which Stoicism, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, have helped me. I'm the pro-client, uh, I guess you'd say. Um, it helps that I'm a good writer, so I'm good at communicating philosophy to my fellow layperson. In fact, that's why I was hired for 365 ways to be more stoic, uh, to create what would otherwise be known as unique examples to the therapist, maybe, uh, but perhaps not to the every person. When I wrote about stoicism and codependency, for example, I wrote it for two reasons. Uh, it actually was one of my best performing articles. Uh, one, because I have a codependent personality, someone with a desperate toxic need to take care of other people in order to feel good about themselves uh, and called it love. I have a long track record of that. Uh, and two, because many millennials are like that and I wanted people to understand why, but also let them know that they can use this trait for good in their lives instead of letting the toxic side determine the course of it. Codependents also happen to be very good at taking care of people, for example, but it's not our job to save people. Uh, it's all about self-awareness, and I just, uh, you know, I want to put that out there. Cool. So I think you've already touched on this a bit, but how did you first get into writing about the more self-help stuff on Medium, for instance? And is there something in particular that you, that you feel that you get out of that? Because I wanted to save people. You to <laughs> well, this, again, is one of those examples of codependency working for good. Even when I was selling comics, I was giving talks about how to do direct sales in comics for indie creators because I saw them struggling. Uh, what good is wisdom and knowledge if you don't share it with others? It's part of making the world a better place. And I happen to be really good at selling books at conventions. Um, that became my brand, really, helping the indie creator more so than my actual books. So... You mentioned uh, in passing there 365 ways to be more stoic, which is out now from John Murray Press, all over the world actually, in ebook, but um, in the UK and hardback, I think it's coming out uh, overseas later in print. And uh, do you want to say a little bit about you edited that book and contributed um, some of the examples and, and so on? Um, do you want to say a little bit about who wrote it and yes. what the book's all about? Yes, that is acclaimed cognitive behavioral therapist, Mr. Tim LeBon. He was excellent to work with. Um, and, you know, he feels the same way. Like, he finds it very rewarding to help people. And he was a big fan of uh, the best-selling Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And I read Don't Sweat the Small Stuff in early college, and it really benefited me. Um, so this is very, 365 Ways to Be More Stoic is actually the stoic version of uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Never read it. Really? No. Is it's it any a, good? Yeah, it's, it's a self-help classic. It helped me during that time. Is it long? No, well, not at all. Maybe I should read it. Yeah, it's actually pretty, 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 pretty short. Tell me what's in it. No. So I don't By the book. It. Right. It's been around for a while, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's been around since the 90s, I think. Yeah, or the 80s. So, and how does 365 ways, like, 365 ways to be more stoic, how does it, by the way, we should say it's part of a series. It is part of a series, ways. yes. There's 365 ways to be more mindful, 
and skin a cat yeah like all the other ones and uh, perform an exorcism I believe is one of them 365 ways to dry jerky yeah. I'm just, we're just making these up by the way but it is a series <laughs> um, the, so how does this book differ from other books about stoicism um, this book, again, it's geared towards the every person and not so much the hardcore fan of history and academic philosophy, although they may enjoy it too. Um, I've said it before that I have no reservations when I say that CBT techniques are the most efficient and practical way to apply stoicism to everyday life. Um, this book is, a un is unique in that every few entries uh, features a CBT exercise that encourages the reader to practice uh, reflect on and adopt because both Tim and I feel that in order to adopt a whole new framework to your outlook, it is more about, you know, it's not just about having those few quotes handy for certain situations. It's about truly adopting the philosophy and it reflecting in your life over time, almost becoming a reflex so that you find lasting happiness, finding happiness and or tranquility about nearly every adversity that befalls you. Is it better than how to think like a Roman emperor? Next question. <laughs> but how does, it, how does it differ from how to think like a Roman emperor? Well, you're a storyteller. It's a different, it's quite a different. Yeah, it's very, actually. yours is very Marcus focused. Yeah. Uh, and, and you are telling a story, whereas these are daily entries. And maybe this is just my, like, there aren't that many books, there are some, but there's not, there aren't that many books in Stoicism that are written by women. And so I think one of the reasons that Tim thought it was a good idea to have you edit the book and contribute to it was to bring in a bit more of a female perspective and to kind of vary it. Because I feel, I do feel like a lot of the books in Stoicism are written in a similar voice. And I think 365 Ways has got a slightly different voice. Yeah, I would say that we're, you know, out to answer questions like, where's Stoicism for the single mother? You know, things, unique examples that are, they seem unique, but really they're every day. Yeah. So that you, I mean, how many examples? You Do, do you have an example? You don't have an example in every chapter from a, a person. You've got these snippets from real people, don't you? How, how many people, how many other people contributed to 365? Oh my goodness, a lot. Lots. A lot. Because uh, one of my favorite parts um, off the top of my head is the willingness for other Stoic influencers to share their personal stories. These are vignettes uh, that tell of the vulnerable times and how Stoicism helped. They speak to you and not at you. And people need to know that you don't need to be perfect in philosophy. That's a really lofty goal anyways. Um, of course, my other favorite parts are the actual techniques because, well, that's the biggest takeaways, the tools for living and living well. And like, just to give people a kind of flavor of how varied it is. So what I mean by saying partly what I mean by saying it's kind of more diverse and, and a different voice is like for instance, um your niece uh yeah. is in it, right? She is. Um so she's not a tip the typical person that you would hear from in a book about stoicism, is she? No. Um she is uh she's an all star athlete, she's a wrestler um, her name's Sylvia Pierce. Um, she's wrestling for a university in Chicago right now, or excuse me, in uh, Illinois. Um, and she's used stoic techniques um, to help her practice the art of indifference because when you need to focus, especially on the mat, 
you can only focus on what you are in control of at that moment. And, you know, especially for people in college, um, you know, the, you're going through a lot of changes and there's a lot of distraction and a lot going on and a lot of finding out about yourself. But how do you tune all those things out to really focus on what you can control? And she's had to do that throughout her uh, wrestling career. She's also, last I checked, she holds the record for the strongest girl in her age and weight class for the United States. So she's also really big on TikTok. Sylvia the Weeb is what she calls herself. And what other sorts of people contributed to 365 ways that, uh, that you know, give it the, the sort of variety? Greg Sadler it was one of my favorites. Um, Mr. Don't Teach Yourself. And uh, let's see, you contributed as well. Um, Brittany Paulette uh, contributed. Um, yeah, we've got a, an all-star cast here. You've, you're really going to recognize some people. And... So you mentioned, what, I think you mentioned what your favourite parts were. Uh, what about the other book that you're working on? Because you've been doing some other stuff since 365 Ways. Um, you're working on something called the Stoicism Workbook from Harbinger. Um, and do you want to say, first of all, a little bit about who you're... So you're one of three authors, lots of authors. So do you want to say a little bit about who the other two authors are? Yes, I was very blessed to be asked to be part of this project. The Stoicism Workbook, which is a working title, um, is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> the co-authors are CBT practitioners Scott Waltman and R. Trent Codd of the acclaimed book, Socratic Questioning for Therapists and Counselors, that was just translated into Japanese. Congratulations, guys. And uh, this is a workbook to, again, most efficiently apply stoicism to your everyday life. But we will be introducing different waves of CBT therapy, such as uh, ideas like ACT, A-C-T, which is the ultimate acceptance of the fact that adversity and discomfort are and will always be a part of life. Uh, these are very empowering principles littered throughout this book. So its focus is more on finding personal inner freedom. I like that because one of my favorite facets about stoicism is that we can ex we ultimately choose how we feel. We can also choose not to feel harmed or exercise the art of indifference about situations. Like Marcus says, hey, this doesn't have to be a thing, man. You don't need to feel one way or the other. So there's a lot of power in this notion because it diffuses the need to be reactionary, which is what our society, especially in America, is really suffering from currently. So I think this is the perfect time for this book. Yeah, I think it's cool that it's got stuff that act in it because we, it, there was a time when nobody talked about stoicism and CBT and now there's kind of like more people talking about that and stuff, but not so many people talk about what we call third wave CBT, um, which has been around for like, 15, 20 years or something now. So CBT has moved on, man. Like, it's progressed. Yeah. Um, and it, I believe the, the third wave of CBT, in many regards, has got more in common with stoicism than the type of CBT that people are more familiar with, which we call the second wave. So ACT, in some ways, I, I think, is a, an even better comparison for, for stoicism. Um. So I'd like to, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to finding more about what you guys have to say about that. Do you, is there anything else that you want to mention while you have the uh, attention of our podcast audience? 
Uh, I can tell you where you can find me. Uh, you can find me on Substack now, which uh, I just started. Uh, Medium especially. I'm very heavy on Medium right now. Um, but on Substack, I will be offering things that are a little more exclusive. And I'm also on Facebook. Uh, my biggest platform is probably Instagram, KCD Writes. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter, at Cosmic KC, the both with Ks. But the way I find you at Substack, that should be easy because... Um, we'll include a, a link to your Substack newsletter when this podcast goes out. All right, so thanks very much, Casey, for joining me for this discussion. So, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from our cat, Cornelius, who you might be able to hear purring in the background. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and this is us signing off. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.